Welcome to Free For All, an episode-by-episode podcast about one of the most endlessly fascinating television shows ever made, The Prisoner. Each week we'll be taking an in-depth look at the 17 episodes of The Prisoner. I'm Chris Bainbridge, Senior Lecturer in Broadcast and Creative Media, and I'm also a Prisoner devotee. And I'm Kai Ross, a film writer, restaurateur, and Chris's mate, which is how I got this gig. (laughs) A, B and C. So, what's the synopsis for this episode, Kai? A, B and C, or a play in three acts. Or or one, two and three. I know, make your bleeding mind up. (laughs) It's like those old uh, films, isn't it? Like the carry-on films, carry on at your convenience. Or Or (laughs) (laughs) the fearless vampire killers, or pardon me. With apologies to uh, (laughs) whoever. Uh, ABC. Well, this is an interesting one. It's essentially... The, I think it is the only one in the series where, where dreams are involved. Yeah. Which is quite fascinating. A, a scientist has worked out a way to uh, get inside your dreams and the uh, number two wants to utilise this as a way to find out who he's... What was it? Who he sold out to? Yeah. When well, he resigned? He, he thinks that the reason for the resignation is that he's going to sell secrets. Mm. So he's making quite a leap there, isn't he, in terms of, yeah. you know, num- <laughs> number six's motivations. Yeah. So on that line of inquiry, he's kind of narrowed it down to three people. And there's a, yes, there's a whodunit element. There's, there are three possible ones. The third, we don't even know what they look like. But we do know that one of them looks like Peter Bowles in perhaps his most <laughs> marvellous moustache in a career of many, many beautiful uh, moustaches. This, I think, may be the, the highlight. So this was first broadcast on Friday the 13th of October 1967, uh, and it reached ratings of 10.9 million. I think in Wales this was actually broadcast on my birthday in okay. 1970. I think a lot of these ones in Wales uh, well, on later, H- yeah. HTV. Look, 1970, that's much later. Yeah. It's like, God Yeah, knows. but if, I mean, if you go back to the 1990s, I know this is not transatlantic, but, you know, like episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation aired in, whatever, 87 mm. in the US, and they didn't reach the UK until about 1989, 1990. Yeah. So but this, this, there was a, like a two, three-year gap. Well, yeah, but this is Wales. This is I know this, this is, is this, this is, is the neighbouring country. <laughs> Have you seen the prisoner? The what? <laughs> oh, it's been a big thing over here, this side of the border, two yeah. miles away. Somebody in Osbury. <laughs> <laughs> so this is kind of like a, a proto version of Inception, yeah. almost, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I was trying to find. I was trying to think of different ways that. That dreams have been involved in in science fiction mm. over the years, and it's actually surprisingly few. Well, the, the, there was, of course, the uh, ubiquitous Mister Lovegrove. Oh, from Danger Man, Danger yes, Man, yeah, directed by Don Chaffee, yes, yes. Uh, which was, I mean, that was basically it's all a dream. Mm. But yes, the, that's that's a fantastic episode as well. But it still plays upon some of the same tropes from this episode in terms of the characters being. Uh, created within that dream world. Yes. Uh, and concerns and worries kind of manifest, which is what happens in Love Grove. He, he finds himself in a situation that he doesn't initially work out he's in a dream. Uh, but but then in ABC, he starts to, almost like a lucid dream, a control the dream, mm. when he discovers what's going on and, and plays number two. Yes. You know, uh, like a fiddle towards the end. <laughs> no, it's a brilliant. It's one of those, uh, it's, it's a great sort of... Uh, Little Victories mm. uh, episode. He uh, t- turns the tables and... Uh, and I'll be honest with you, it, it wasn't one of my favourite episodes. 
Mm. It was one I, I wouldn't say skip, but probably not give as much attention to. Watching it again with, with fresh eyes, I really enjoyed it. I, I did as well. I remember this as being sort of very much a B-side filler episode. Mm. Um, and I think it was done with pretty low expectations. From what I've read, I think Tomlin basically, I think money was running out a little bit and they needed an episode mm-hmm. and they basically grabbed Anthony Skeen and said, uh, just give us something, please. But ideally something that's largely stock footage. Yeah. Something we can just cut together quite quickly. Well, they had, um, they had apparently at the time limited access to Port Marion. Mm. So the only kind of exterior shots you see are the, uh, the uh, Magoon stunt double, Frank Mayer, yes. kind of following people. So you only see the, the, the back of number six. I think whenever you see the back of anyone in an ITC show, you should, ex- <laughs> it's not them. You should assume <laughs> it's not them. <laughs> and there's quite a lot of this. He should have got a full credit. I think he's in this episode more than Patrick McGowan is. Yeah, probably. And I think Skeen apparently said he just went for a bit of a walk around. I think this is in the Fairclough book. But he went for a walk around the set and apparently they were making the Dirty Dozen mm. around and just stuff like that. And he sort of found these sets and thought, well, we'll just use these. And he wrote around that. That sort of thing doesn't really make you pulse with excitement. Yeah, it was so. It was great fun. In fact, mm. Tomlin's actually said this is his favourite episode. Okay. I'd imagine this is the kind of thing Mark Steen would have probably liked. And again, in the Fairclough book, I think he he, he establishes a link between the, uh, the the three possible spies and Burgess and Philby and McLean. Oh, of course. Yeah, it's uh, Peter Ball's character, isn't it? Yes, so he's, de- he's, his... he's defected recently, hasn't he? Made world news. Yes. Well, yes. Mm. And his wonderful voice he starts to... He's actually... He reminds me of the part he played in Blow Up. He, he seems to have gone... Oh, well, I've, I've done this little thing in Blow Up. I'll do it exactly the same way. Yeah. Hello. But <laughs> <laughs> very effective. Did you uh, notice the difference, the the change to the the opening titles in the episode? Oh, the, he was the Colin Gordon was the first one to say I'm number two. Yeah, he doesn't say the new number two. Yes, and doesn't he give his laugh a good go? It's very forced, isn't it? It's it's it's, it's, it's it, yeah. It, it was almost. <laughs> I think it, it was. It kind of got me in a slightly bad mood from the get go. You can imagine Pat like Jackson panto, going. Isn't it? it was a bit. Uh, Colin, darling, um, maybe give it another go. Uh, yeah, he says, I am number two. Mm. Now, I've got a theory about this. Oh, go on. But in the general, which was shot after, immediately after ABC, he says, the new number two, mm. which is interesting. But I, I, my, I suspect that the general was supposed to air prior to A, B and C. It would make a lot more sense if it did, because in the general, mm. uh, Colin Gordon is uh, rather cocksure. Yes. Uh, you don't think it'll work, do you? Yeah. I know it does, and... Apparently he was supposed to be electrocuted at the end, you know, when all uh, the computer blows itself up. But he, he went down so well that they, they rewrote that. But it would make more sense for that to be the first one. Yes, and then, yes, definitely. And then ABC to be the second one, because he's, from the very first scene in ABC, he is a nervous wreck. Mm-hmm. He is uh, just constantly staring at that colossal phone. It's almost like this is his second and last chance. Yeah, uh, because and, and he's he's in a state because he knows he's failed with yes. the uh, with the general plot, and now he's uh, everything everything hinges on this desperate plan. So narratively, this would work after the general much better. In fact, straight after and including those opening titles. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> I think they Chris. They've got it all to cock. <laughs> yeah. Who's the two? What do we know about Colin Gordon? He's almost like a, a British major from central casting, isn't he? He's got literally everything you need for that sort of 1950s sort of mid-level authority figure, like bank manager or something like mm-hmm. that. I recognise him from 
He was in Casino Royale, wasn't he? Yes, he was, yes. With exactly the same... Mistake. In fact, he's never looked any different. He always... <laughs> that's his, anything he was in, that's exa- and he, I think he only played the same part every single time. Officious British bureaucrat type. Well, the funny thing is, that he was actually 55 when they were shooting this. But, but I think he looks younger. As opposed to some of these actors who are actually like Peter Swanick, yeah. who are younger, I think with the because of the way his hair's kind of swept back and this blonde. I was going to say there's a, there's a bit when he sort of wakes up in the middle of the night. Well, actually, weirdly, he wakes up in the middle of the day because he's um, he's in his nightgown and he couldn't sleep last night and everything. He rises up out of his uh, amazing balloon chair uh, and he's got these fantastic sort of blonde streaks everywhere. Yes. But then he sort of uh, where the hell is he? Sort of goes looking for number six on the surveillance. And it's uh, the middle of the day, so that that was a bit curious. Yeah, he played uh, the casino director in Casino Royale. Yes, but yes. he'd also play, uh, he was also in Doctor Who, the serial, the Faceless Ones. Was that after? Uh, that was before. That was um, well, it, it was aired before the Prisoner, uh, mm. so production would probably been around the same kind of time. He was also in the Family Way, the Bolting Brothers one. Yes, yes, yeah. probably as bank manager. Uh, he was a travel agent. A travel agent. So you're not that far uh, off. Yes, it's a... And I think, didn't Paul McCartney do the soundtrack? He did, yes. For that. From, uh, he was also in The Baron and various other things as well. St. Trinian, Zed Cars. Yeah. Various other things. A, de- so, a, de- a dependable, decent sort of yeah. uh, mid-level actor. You yeah. Know? He, was good. he was pretty memorable in this. He must have been to, to have been given two shots. No, must, yeah, I definitely. Mean, in fact... He's the, apart from McKern, obviously, I think he is the only one who got two yes. cracks at this, isn't he? Yes, he is. Um, so he's, yeah, I think he, he made a good impression. Yeah. The milk thing was interesting. Yeah, well, I, I mean, that I seems read... That his, his thing. Well, I, well, maybe he's got an ulcer, because <laughs> maybe the stress is giving him an ulcer, because, that, you know, people used to drink, well, they still drink milk to but treat stomach ulcers, don't they? Is this before the invention of Pepto-Bismol? Well, it was 1967, wasn't it? 1967. Exactly. And you were, st- are they, are they, you were still being encouraged to drink a pint of it. A yeah. Day. And, of course, this was a time where you could buy milk in cartons on railway stations. Yeah, oh, just, oh, I instantly think of A Hard Day's Night. I think of Billy Lyre. Ah, in the Triangle ones. Yes. Colin Gordon was born in Ceylon. Oh, yes, uh, former Sri Lanka. Yeah, adding, uh, again, to our kind of international roster of number twos. Yes. But British, but probably a military, I would say, maybe a military family. He do, yeah, he does have a military bearing. He has, I don't know, he, see, he carries with him something of a sort of disgraced major. Yeah. He's sort of, uh, there's a terrible secret bubbling away and it's uh, he's constantly, there's a bit, I mean, when McGowan sort of rattles him with a line about sort of clearly knowing where these um, pinpricks on his wrist came from, he just, his kind of demeanour shifts uncomfortably. So I think he was he was pretty good, Colin Gordon. The milk thing was just I I guess the, well we're all playing different number twos. We all need something to make us stand out from the other one. Mine will be milk. <laughs> I've decided my character will drink milk. But um, sadly, he he died in 1972, so his career was cut short a little bit yes. in that respect. But you know, af- after the prisoner, he did some more ITC shows. He did uh, Department S, and he also did uh, UFO. And uh, as bank manager, he played a doctor in Department S. That would have worked. Yeah, doctor, bank manager. Yes, travel agent, mustachioed doctor. But uh, I, I, I suspect there was some typecast in there. Yeah, his bearing, <laughs> a little bit like Michael Shirt, who was in um, uh, Grange Hill, Mister Bronson in Grange Hill. Do you remember he and always, the Empire Strikes Back? The Empire as well. Strikes Back. He always played these officious types. He played Hitler a few times as well, didn't he? Oh, in the uh, Last Indiana Crusade. Jones, yeah. 
that's the trouble, isn't it? If you have a certain look as an actor, yes, you, you, you can't get out of these roles. I know the agent will phone. Is it the lead? Is it the lead in the new romantic comedy? No, no, it's uh, it's, it's Hitler it's, again. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, you're playing the regional manager of Barclays. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll do it. See, that's how he should have done his laugh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I can, you can imagine, can't you? So, how, so we want you. To, so you've done number two, and we now we need you to laugh. What kind of laugh? What's my motivation? What kind of laugh? It's a maniacal laugh. Maniacal laugh. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not a pantomime. Um, <laughs> as if you're, you're genuinely threatening. Like a Stephen Toast scene, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> oh, threatening. All right, here we go. <laughs> no, no. Oh. You know what? I think we've done two takes. That's plenty. We'll use that one. What I thought was interesting in uh, the, the, the dream version of yes. number six, or, or, or the manifestation of number six's dream world, is that he's dreaming the title sequence yeah. um, from a, a third-person perspective. Well, this is something they always do, mm. and it bugs me a bit. Yeah. Um, it's not just here, it's a standard trope, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, whenever, you, whenever you see somebody's dreams, they're in it as if they're being watched, and that's, yeah. that never happens. But we all know it's, it's cost-saving. You know, they just you want to recycle the footage. You could do... There are ways of getting around it, but nobody ever does. Even yeah. now, if it's a dream, um, you're being watched. And it's mm. like you're, not, you're watching from the dream. Well, I, think, I think this episode is the closest thing to being a bottle episode, apart from Once Upon a Time. Yes. I mean, you've only got the number two set. You've got some studio work, um, uh, fake exteriors. You've got some Port Marion scenes, which are body doubles. Uh, and then you've got the party scene. Um You've you've got the car scenes as well, and you know, but it's all on the back lot. Yeah, it's it's probably one of the cheaper episodes to make, and I think maybe you know if if this is a filler episode from their perspective, they are kind of putting in you know rather than going to that trouble of shooting additional footage, yeah. just throwing in you know the title sequence. It, it does illustrate as well why you, you need these filler episodes uh, to go into syndication because mm. I mean we we put a lot of stock in which order they came in, which mm. the broadcast and shot and all that stuff, because it's intriguing. Mm. Uh, but ultimately, to be in syndication, an audience will have to just watch it. Un- you know, yeah. It doesn't matter which order. They have to work. They can't sort of, this makes no sense. Well, you didn't see it last week. No, this is the first episode I've seen. So they've got to kind of work on their own terms yes. independently. I think The Prisoner does that, though. They do, they do, actually, apart from literally the last two. Mm. Um, you could watch any of them in any order. It just makes sense in a certain order how does it work as a third episode because it's it takes you out of the sort of the village context there's barely any village scenes doesn't work especially well i I think as the third episode it feels much more like a tenth yeah it it does feel like it should be later on yes one thing i thought that was worth looking at was the meta reference or the self awareness towards the end of the episode. Yes, you know, I, yeah, it's quite clear where he's talking to number two and number fourteen, but he's also arguably talking to the audience at home. Yeah, I mean, again, this this is why it would work a little bit better as a later episode because all the way you would build up the anticipation here yeah. and the audience. Who come on? Who's number one? Mm. Tell us who's number one. And everyone expecting the sort of chair to turn round, and yeah. there's somebody, somebody stroking a cat. Yeah. So, which would have just riled McGowan. Yeah. And I think it, it is almost a sort of, you can almost take a front as that. 
steady on. I was only asking. But let's be honest. If let's say they had gone down that route, mm. and there was you know famous actors, you know someone turns Orson around. Wells. Orson Wells, yeah, someone like Orson Wells turns around and sort of like, you know, ah, you made it this far now to all that kind of stuff. I don't think the prisoner would have been. I think it would have just been a curio. It would have been a a show that's kind of remembered fondly. Yes, almost like the other ITC shows. Uh, it yeah, wouldn't it, have endured. Yeah, it would be remembered as that terribly intriguing show that they blundered at the ending by just parachuting Orson Welles. Yeah. A bit like they did when, um, in Magnum. Didn't he play Robert, Robin Masters? Or I think they just got him to do his voice. Oh, God. It was a bit of a sort of... Cool. Oh, it's Orson, they got Orson Welles to do it. Yeah. And you think, well, yeah, Orson Welles is doing literally anything he's offered these days to yeah. raise money. This is not a coup. He was doing wine adverts, wasn't he? Yeah, frozen peas. <laughs> frozen peas. <laughs> Bird's eye. Bird, yes. Bird's eye potato waffles. <laughs> I can't do it. Potato. If we just turn it into a Shakespeare thing, these potato waffles. <laughs> mm. Go buy them. <laughs> have some. Have some of this Californian wine as well. Um, but, but things like you know some of these shows where they give away the answers, they give away. We've talked about this before, but you know when you spell everything out for an audience, yeah, it, it, the mystique is gone, and yeah. this, the, the prisoner is all about the mystique. Yeah. It's all about the unanswered questions. Which is but, why we're talking about it 50-odd exactly. years later. Exactly. No, it's, it's very, very interesting, that, the, uh, particularly at the end. Uh, well, should we, should we ruin the ending for you? Yes, if you haven't seen the episode, why are you listening to this? Uh, so the brilliant bit where he unmasks the arch-villain, and it turns out to be number two because he's on to him, and he's, uh, he's, it's all a big trick from McGoon. Like I said, he's playing that for the audience at home as well. Yeah, he He's giving them what, it, what they want. He tur- yeah, he turns him towards... A camera, essentially, mm. doesn't he? Turn this the thing again with uh, with with dreams where you're you're being watched in the way they depict these things. McGoon actually, t- t- who's he who's he turning it to? But he's turning it towards some sort of uh, some some imaginary camera that's there. Yes, yeah. and just ripping off. It gives the game away. It, it is. I think it, it, it's like breaking the fourth wall, isn't it? It's it's you're talking directly to your audience, so you yes. kind of you know breaking that that uh, illusion. A, a, of a wall between you and the audience, like yeah. on stage. So you've got the you know the cyclorama and then the the, the wings. So you get three walls, and then your fourth wall is that imaginary line. Mm. And I think that's what what he's doing within that. He's not talking to number two. He's talking to the audience at home as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm saying it's uh, it's ridiculous. They should, but I I can't honestly think of another way of doing it. No. It's, um, and maybe they would have had a discussion. So like, hang on, <laughs> who's but, he turning the? But ultimately, it's. Well, there's only one way to do this, dear. Let's just let's, let's, let's do this, and it works, and it's brilliant. And then he goes back to dreaming about his own title sequence. Yes, which is on a loop. But it's quite funny because then he he, he makes his way back to That's, the chamber. That, that was a brilliant bit of uh, and the, the way the camera follows the where he should be, and yeah. it's just, and they look, yeah, We're thinking he's coming through the door. It's, As if he's going, you know, he's on a gurney next to them. It's all these things that make it so much fun. It yeah. is, it's, it's a good, fun episode, yes. this. It's kind of fun to see them, the way he turns the tables. and How, do, how does he make it? Did, did I miss a bit where uh, uh, she says, well, I'll go this back way because that's the only place where there aren't any cameras. <laughs> how does he manage to get all the way to the secret cave and find his way through without being seen? There's surveillance mm. everywhere. Uh, a little uh, blunder there, or, or did well, I maybe, miss it? Maybe the maybe the surveillance is only in areas where the, the general populace are likely to, to travel. Mm. You know, maybe that's like a, a pathway that you know is only for employees only or something. Yes, so they don't feel and unconvincing need. stunt doubles. Yeah, 
who can come and go as they wish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the guest stars. Yes. We have the wonderful Peter Bowles. The marvellous. Famous for To the Manor Born. Yes, indeed. The Bounder. I mean, he's been a staple of British TV for many, many years. You Forever. Back, yeah. He was still, he was in the West End, I think, uh, not last year, obviously, but the year before, uh, in something pretty major. He's uh, he's sort of fairly dateless actor. Well, he, I remember... He, he ages very much like Brandy. Yeah. And, and he's, you know, he was born in 1936. Mm. So he would only have been about 30. Yes. In this episode, because he does look quite youthful. But I remember he turned up in an episode of the Vic and Bob, Randall and Hopkirk, deceased about 20 years ago as a headmaster, not looking any older. No. he. I think he stopped ageing about 30 years ago. <laughs> and still perform- he's still acting. In fact, he had a he has a film out this year yeah. in which he plays a vicar in uh, <laughs> Off the Rails. Broadening, uh, broadening his range there a little bit. But, uh, but, yeah, even so, like, even by the time he did The Prisoner in uh, 1967, he'd already done, you know, many shows like Adam Adamant Lives. Yeah, he was in lots of Avengers ones. Yeah, The Saint, um, the Baron. Do you remember the one they, they get where he, he tricks people into thinking they've gone back in time? Yes, yes. And it's, uh, and it's him in various wigs. Yes. That's a and they're all episode. on uh, yeah. mannequins, <laughs> aren't they? Yeah. And there's one where he, I think, he, I think he's in the one where he paints himself with invisible paint <laughs> so he can escape from... Uh, Amazing. Yes, Amazing. this was the sort of the, the the back end of the Avengers. But he knew McGoon. He he'd done an episode of Danger Man mm. uh, in 1964 as well. But but even by that time, he, he had a wealth of, of TV and, and film work under his belt, mostly TV. But what I like about his performance in this, it's very I don't know if you notice this, uh, but it's very homoerotic. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> for the time, considering that, I'm not suggesting the character was homosexual, but. At the time, it was illegal in, in Britain. It was decriminalised in 1967. Yes. Yeah, so. So, so all characters or anyone playing a gay character would have to be... Coded. Coded, yeah. And subtle performances. Or you would go the other complete end, like Dick Emery. Yes. And they'd be over-the-top silk hankies and big hats and, <laughs> you know, slightly camp gate to them as well. <laughs> But this, I, I see this as the character being the, the, this homoerotic um, interplay between the two characters yes. in this. He's, he kind of sizes them up quite a lot, doesn't mm. he? And a lot of that. And there's a rather nice bit when they need him back, so he opens the door and he's there again. Yeah. It's, mm. And he, it's, he's, he plays it a nice kind of sinister. Mm. He's quite kind of comically effete, I don't know. Um, but there's the, the undertones of what he's saying are always slightly. Nicely nasty. Mm. So it's a, it's quite an. He's only, I think he's only in it for about yeah, he's like barely very brief ten minutes, five possibly. But he's very very good in it. And uh, and as for B, so yeah, B was played by Annette Carroll, who sadly died not long after. It's yeah, rather tragic echoes of Virginia Maskell. I well, she was a she was originally um, she was a German actress mm. who who came over to the UK. By the time uh, she'd done the Prisoner, she she'd done a lot of television like Zed Cars. Uh, she was in the the Avengers. I think I think anybody in the <laughs> any actor on British television was in the Avengers at some point. Uh, yes, it was or a, Doctor Who. Have you have you done your Avengers? Yes, yeah. uh, you done no, your next, Doctor Who. Oh no, yes, and next week. Do Join it. that queue, please. <laughs> <laughs> Come back when you've done a. Yes, I can't get on it. Peter Bowles just seems to be on it every single week. Yeah. Him and Ray, Ray McAnally <laughs> was in about 58 Avengers episodes. Or John Abenary. <laughs> uh, 
and that Carol is chipping in things like uh, the Baron and BBC's plays, of, you know, play of the month, the Saint. Again, that's another one. Everyone had been in the Saint, but then again, Danger Man, the Saint. There were so many episodes made. Yeah, you know, it's it's not surprising that these actors appeared. They um, well, that, that brings us to a, a an issue, really. Well, not an issue. This uh, quite an interesting issue is the um, the idea of repeat performances, actors. Mm. Showing up in this series more than once. In this episode, Mrs. Butterworth, Georgina Cookson. Georgina Cookson, yeah, who, she turns up. She turns up nameless, uh, so I don't know if she she uh, she is playing the. Mm. This is the kind of intriguing thing. You don't really know uh, what's happening, but she's obviously going to turn up later in uh, Many Happy Returns. Yes, she does. Um, this happens a few times. We've talked about Christopher Benjamin already, haven't yes. we? Cargill yes. does this. Yes, and it's it's. I don't. I, I suspect there's almost nothing to, to to get from this. But again, the prison is all about these unanswered questions. And yeah. is it intriguing or isn't it? Um, you see, my interpretation. But again, this is just an interpretation, uh, not de- detracting from anybody's understanding or, or view of the prisoner. Is is that it's an internal casting hmm. by the individual character. The only the person who's real in in my mind, in his mind, is is number six. Is he represents the individual society. So in order to kind of play out this psychodrama, he's casting from his own experience or his own context. Yeah. So he's putting faces onto these characters from people he knows or people he doesn't like, like Thorpe, yeah. who becomes number two. I don't like that person. So within this world I've constructed, I'm going to cast from a limited repertoire of mental actors. That's that's just one interpretation. That's, yeah, that, that's an ace interpretation. Do you like that? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. That, that's how I see. That's how I see it, and it also explains that it's probably something as simple as just who's available at this time. Do you know they probably, they probably didn't? It, do you, you know you've been in this show before. No, I, that was the Baron. No, no, no. You you were in two. Put two a mustache on. Oh God, really? They're all the bloody same. Uh, and what about Catherine Cath, the esteemed French actress? Yes. Who went to the same acting school as the French actress from Faulty Towers, I'm guessing. It was the same sort of, uh, hello, darling. Oh, your cheeky French-English monkey. I love her. I think she's amazing. Yes. she's And absolutely... that little, the flirting. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of flirting, that which you know would never go anywhere. But it's that older lady flirting. Yes. With, with number six, you know, making these kind of innuendo and he just laughs, laughs off and humours her. It's just brilliant. That amazing 60s diaphanous dress. Yes. No, she's brilliant. I, I, what's she been in? Because she's, she's quite larger than life. Well, in she, this. Did, she did a lot of British television, things like armchair theatre. But she was predominantly a movie actress, especially back in, back in France. So if you, if you look at her film history, not anything that really kind of stands out, but a lot of films, The Beasts of Marseille, The Dangerous Youth. But then again, she, she'd done things like The Benny Hill Show, you know, um, as the French lady. Yeah, seductive French. Madame so-and-so, <laughs> Madame so-and-so. You know, she's, she plays Madame Parfait in uh, The Beasts of Marseille. Wasn't, wasn't that a womble? <laughs> but uh, yeah, the um, I, I quite like this conceit of you know this this was a party, yes, that she would hold the, these soirees in Paris that everybody went to, and yeah, it was a nice way to get number six 
you know, the, the conceit of having, you know, the only place that these three people would have ever met is at this party. Yes, it wouldn't be in, in the queue of a travel agent's office yeah. or something. No, it's going to be in a big street. It's not going to be in an airport. It's going to be somewhere that we can basically, we've already got the set for, we just get a load of extras in. Mm. There we go, sorted. It's a party. And, there's a, and it's a great party as well. The, I think it's in the third dream mm. when he makes an entrance and the music's in full swing. Full kind of psychedelic. Da, yeah, and it, yeah, and, it, and the, the camera's starting to go all Dutch. Yeah. So for for about ten minutes, it feels like an episode of Batman. But he then also he, he tilts the mirror. Doesn't that, he? That's a fantastic shot. Mm. Uh, old Pat Jackson there, sort of. Uh, hang on, I've got an idea here, and it's a brilliant. It's he's holding McGoon the holding, mirror. He's holding the camera, isn't he? And he's, he's turning the room upside down. Yeah, and he does this extraordinary line reading. Mm. He goes, "What did he say? This uh, is a dreaming dreamy party." party. <laughs> <laughs> you think there isn't an actor on planet Earth who would have do that? Sell that. I think I think I'll do it like this. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell are you saying? But that's the first, that's his nod and a wink, isn't it? To say, I, I know where I am. Yeah, or I'm, I'm slightly going mad here. Yeah. And it, it, tell you something else, I thought, because of the way he's dressed, mm. it's a sort of a taste of what he would have looked like as Bond. Yes, I suppose it is. He's, he's there, I mean, maybe that could have been a little nod as well. But I, I think it's also, it's also appeasing the Danger Man audience. Yes, showing him... Because it's a very Danger Man Yeah, looking like an actual episode, secret agent. It? Yeah. It is, yes. Yeah, no, it, it does feel a little bit like an episode of something. In fact, actually, I think Anthony Skeen kind of rewrote mm. an episode that he was writing for something called Counter-Strike. Counter-Strike, yeah. Counter-Strike. yeah. which um, had John Finch yes. in it. He, John Finch is kind of, he should be better known. Yeah. I, I mean, he, he he was in. I remember he was in uh, Hammer House of Horror. He was in the Martian Chronicles, the wonderful uh, low budget Rock Hudson vehicle. <laughs> yeah. He played Jesus in that. Did he? Yeah. But I mean, he was in. He was the lead in Frenzy and Macbeth. Mm, yes, yes. And yet, he's never really sort of spoken about as a, one of our, our great actors. No. Sort of just goes under the radar. But they didn't. He ma- they, they made Counter Strike eventually. I, I think he already had the script. Yeah, he was saying he could have uh, maybe he had just had the and idea. He adapted that he it ran for it. ABC. Yeah, because there, there, there was an element of um, Anthony. We need this. Yeah. We need this quickly, please. But it's almost a little bit like Thunderball, isn't it? With the that kind of script was knocking about and was revamped and then was revamped again for Never Say Never Again. But yeah, yeah it just shows that. Writers can basically just adapt. You change the characters mm. down. I was I was reading recently about um, when the Beatles wanted to make their third film after Help. Yes, they approached Joe Orton. I think it was called Up Against It. Up Against It, yeah, and it had four main characters. And then, of course, when the Beatles lost interest in it, and of course Brian Epstein died, Orton was kind of like, "Well, what do we do with this? I'm going to rewrite it." And he cut the four characters down to three, and he readapted it. Catherine Kath plays Engadine, mm. which gives us another Swiss connection because in Do Not Forsake Me, he goes to Switzerland, doesn't he? Yes. But in this episode, she's called Engadine, which translates as the upper part of the valley of the River Inn in Switzerland. Really? Yeah. So it's, there's another Swiss reference there. So whether that's just, we need a, a French-sounding name, you know, but is there more to that? Do you know what? As far as this podcast goes, everything has to have more to it. I would say so. Let's dig. Let's dig. <laughs> so that's an actual location. Yeah. But again, we is it, revisit. Is it, a, is it a clue? I, I tell you what, a, a little bit of trivia, which I love. Um, and it's something I, I talked to you about a while ago. Is that the folders that they use, those box folders. Yes. They turn up 
in another episode. I think it's I think it's Randall and Hopkirk. Oh, really? But they they use they reused <laughs> as a prop, and I I think it's either Randall and Hopkirk or, or, or Department S. I'm pretty sure it's Randall and Hopkirk. But they turn up in a in a future episode because this was shot a couple of years later, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, Randall and Hopkirk. But yeah, yeah, repurposing those props, <laughs> which I love. What do you think about the symbology of the red telephone? Is it me or does it get bigger every time you see it? I think it's framed, but it's framed that way yeah. intentionally, isn't it? To give it dominance in that scene. Um, yeah, it's interesting. You can see the way he's holding it, that I don't think it's particularly well well, well, well designed. Built. I think if he Steve Jobs would never have created a handheld phone like that. Oh, it's not like that. I think it's just been sort of um, uh, plastic moulded, but but quite shoddily. I think if he grabbed it, it would just collapse. But th- there's something to be said there. If, if you look at um, Arrival, where number six picks up the phone at the information station, yes, you know that the, the form of that phone is practical. You've yes. got a mouthpiece and earpiece, and it just picks up. It's nice classic design. Pick up and you can and talk. Whereas this phone is is, is comically like impractical. And, yes, yeah. There's like no thought to the form. <laughs> design. You know, whoever designed that has made the most bulky, unwieldy, <laughs> unsaleable piece of communications. communications. It's basically the Betamax. <laughs> uh, I, I won't may, have anything said I was about say, the Betamax. Maybe this phone actually is much better quality yeah. and will actually be used by sort of phone people, but ultimately it's never going to be sell, sold to the public. No. Uh, but, but they would I, prefer I, the form, first one. Form and function, I mean, obviously the function side, but the form has completely gone out the window unless they're trying to... Kind of say, this is the phone you talk to number one on. Even even the phone intimidates him. Yes. By being much bigger than his head. Yes. <laughs> the way they shoot it, though, with him in the background and just giving that dominance as well. But but the red as well, is, yeah. I think, is important. Is is he the only number two that actually speaks to number one? No, number... Well, um, Darren Nesbitt's number two. I'm pretty sure speaks to number that, one. Yeah, that's right. In, in a sort of, sort of chummy, cocky way. Oh yes, don't worry about that. We've got another. But it's never. It's never. Impl- it's only implied. It's never stated. That it could be somebody else. It could be the supervisor. It could be uh, an intermediary. It doesn't. It's never specifically spelt out. Yeah. Uh, only Colin Gordon's, I think, because of the the fear. Well, actually, Cargill's number two. Yes. Yes. Has uh, that fear as well. Which is, a, I mean, it's a curious thing, knowing what we know about how the series ends and who mm. number one is. It's actually a curious plot device to actually have somebody there speaking, to have mm. number one speaking to him, as if it was a genuine Bond yeah. villain type thing. You can imagine... Um, but that's you can see that's the Mark Stein influence. Yes. Because as far as he's concerned, this is John Drake. He's a spy who's in Invalair Lodge or somewhere mm. like that, and that's how he wants it to proceed. Was then McGowan's like saying, "Well, yes, but, but he's not. There's a exactly not. <laughs> he's he's not, not John Drake. Uh, this is more of an allegory. This is more of a. This makes you think rather than having it spelt out to you." Yeah, I, th- I mean that was at the crux of why they 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 fell out. It yeah. was it was, um, and I I think if you if you watch something like Special Branch, again with the splendid Darren Nesbitt, that's much more Mark Steen's mm. cup of tea, isn't it? Mm. I think that's much more sort of it's. Grounded. There's none of this allegorical nonsense. But that's what people wanted, and of course, Special Branch led into the to shows like uh, the Sweeney. Yes, and the Professionals. And the Professionals, yeah. But yeah, I think from a semiotic viewpoint, the color red 
obviously the the implication of of, uh, of danger of death like red alerts and and things like that it's 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 a, a blood of course it, it's a very powerful color yes from a semiotic viewpoint to suggest threat to th- yeah exactly threat uh, yeah it would danger have, yeah you know, a green phone or a blue phone or a purple phone wouldn't have had the same impact the red has. And he does look terrible. You, you can imagine, you can imagine if he if he messes this up, he will be asked to walk across a shoddy bridge over a piranha <laughs> pond. Um, he has that look, doesn't he? And he's he's terribly beastly with number fourteen. Mm. It's just appalling. He's like uh, a bad manager. Yeah, blaming others yeah. always. If you get this wrong, it's your fault. There's also a kind of element of narcissism within the character as well. Narcissistic traits. Yes. Of how he kind of targets number 14, blames number 14. Says, your neck on the line. You know, you feel that there's no real, you know, it's his insecurity and and paranoia. Almost like what happens with Cargill. Mm. It's number two in uh, Hammer into Anvil. It's a good way of depicting people in authority, particularly just people who are inept. The Peter Principle thing of just being promoted far above your abilities. Yes. But you're st- they're still the authority figures. That yeah. sort of, I'm sure McGowan would have viewed people like that as just appallingly weak and useless. Well, there's another way to look at this. Um, we're going back to the men- like the many faces theory. But the um, have you seen a film called Identity? Oh, John Cusack. Cusack. Yes. The twist, isn't it, in Identity, is that the the characters within the play are all facets of this serial killer's personality. Mm. So the way it's kind of shot is that you see the serial killer under questioning and then there's that almost like what you think is a flashback to events that have taken hell. place. Yeah. But these characters are all facets of this person's psyche. So it's almost going into young, isn't it? And, mm. you know, maybe these characters, these number twos, are all facets of number six's psyche. They're yes. all part of him. His fears, his concerns, his his loves, his passions, his humour... Because McGowan, if you've got McGowan against McKern, you've got the, the comedy, but there's also authority. There's like that social aspect. Yes. And then with Darren Nesbitt's number two, you've got youth. With Cargill, you've got paranoia and insecurity. You've got and, authority and, with Gordon. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that with like Cargill, uh, who obviously we'll get to much later, but his, I mean, he's a psychopath, mm. but it's all based on his personal failings and mm. you're right, his paranoia. And a little bit the same with uh, with Colin Gordon's. In, in each of those instances, number six breaks brings them down. Yeah, he humiliates them. But if you look at it from that perspective, the I, I'll call it the identity theory. Yes, is that it, it, he's kind of breaking down his own concerns, his own worries, his own failings, his, his own failings. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, like we're talking about the milk and the if it's an ulcer, you know, it's the worry. Mm. It's that the, the part of us that worries about things is manifest in Colin Gordon's character. It's just one way to look at it. Yeah, but that's... doesn't necessarily mean it's the right way to look at it. Oh no, 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 no! I'm going with it. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> it's a fact from now. On. No, no, it's again one wonderful uh, many ways of uh, of interpreting yeah. this. It's, again, it's why it's so perfect. But I mean, I've heard so many interpretations. Aliens and uh, aliens, really? Yeah, yeah. A friend, How? Of, friend of mine thought that the the village was, and he sat down and he explained his reasoning. And I thought, actually, I understand where you're coming from. Um, you know, it does make sense. I did. I personally don't see it that way, but he's entitled to that interpretation. Yeah, and that's how he watches it. But you can watch it over a course of 
over the years and watch it with new eyes and, and new context to it and watch it in different ways. Yeah. And that's part of the beauty of it. It's got. I mean, uh, this is why I, I, I maintain it is a, a masterpiece. I think it's got. I've, I watch it in different ways as I've got older. Because, yes. I mean, yes. we were seventeen when we started getting into this. Just you, you watch it as a as a thirty year old man and forty forty six year old man now. <laughs> you, you start identifying differently with with yes. the characters and seeing le- different levels of sophistication and. Well, we were watching it as Alexis Canna, and now we're watching it as McKern. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're watching it without responsibility and families yeah. and things like that. And now it's like we are the McKern with the responsibilities. And yeah, the, the... we were I, we were suckered into it by the by the colours and the action and yeah. the uh, and, the, and the, the thrill, the music, all the surface stuff. And when we're fifty, mm. I'm sixty. I'm sure we'll watch it in different ways. It's like, ah, do you know what I start? I think it's, so. It's just never ever going to. It just constantly adapts yes. in, the, in, the, yes. in the minds of everybody who sees it, and it adapts differently, and it's uh, it's just absolutely wonderful. But the uh, what about the end, where the, the reveal of what's in the envelope, what we think are kind of official secrets? I was just going on holiday. <laughs> yes, which which ties in with the um, opening title sequence, yes. doesn't it? Well, it's not because he when he closes his suitcase. Um, you see there's some colour photographs of, of, a, of, of a, the beach with palm trees. Yeah, which is... Uh, we, right, we need, to need to show that he's going somewhere abroad. Yeah. Uh, we need it now. Well, I've got these. That's no, just, Nobody would ever pack these. Just, just get them printed. Just, got the travel agent. Get it, in, get get it in the case. Get it in the case. <laughs> but I suppose he... I mean, in, the, in Charles of Big Ben, he does actually say... Oh, does he? I mean, is my mind playing tricks? He says, I resigned because for a long time now, I... Wait a minute. Yeah. So does he actually? Conscience. Yeah. He, so he he does. Yeah. But ultimately, but he is going again. On it doesn't matter. And I think that the whole travel brochure thing, and also the um, the opening sequence with the, with the photos, I, I just think that's McGoohan making light of it. I think that's just kind of a little nod to say you know, it doesn't really matter. Mm. You're barking up the wrong tree. If, if if you're concerned and watching this like an Agatha Christie thriller, trying to find out who the murderer is or you know what the motive is, you're missing the point. Mm. You know, it doesn't matter who he is. You're missing the point. If you think it's John Drake, you're missing the point. Mm. I'm not playing this as John Drake. And that's like when when uh, Roger Moore became James Bond. If you hadn't given James Bond a name, you'd assume he was still playing Simon Templar. Yes, yeah, he didn't do much moderating between the roles, really, did he? But this is Simon Templar, and this is James Bond. He's playing it in a very similar style with some very similar situations. But it's the same with McGowan. You know, he's not playing John Drake in Ice Station Zebra. If he was the mystery character secret agent who's come on board that submarine and he's not going to know you can guarantee people saying ah but was he playing john drake <laughs> you know I, I i think i think this has only really come from mark stein who went on record saying no he was john drake yes and then mcgoon's going no no he wasn't, he wasn't. you've got this completely wrong yeah. but, but i was... think mark stein wanted to sell the show and he wanted to see it as a continuation i think he wanted it you know, he he probably didn't like the subtext and the themes and the allegory that McGowan was kind of pushing. No, I, he may have even seen it as a sort of threat to its saleability. Yeah, absolutely. Because let's not terms. forget, this wasn't shot as a cult show. No, this was... This uh, was big I, budget. I think this was probably the most expensive television yeah. show made at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and, and I think a lot of people forget that. Is this was, bit, it was, you know, well-hyped, it was on prime time, and it was shot on film, and it had some of the, you know best actors of the day as well and McGowan who was a film star you know was I mean, that, well I mean I think Danger Man had made him a household name I think he yeah. was t- I think he was the highest paid but he'd done like Doctor Sin 
he'd done uh, Thomas Cena. He, he was a film star. Yes, I suppose he was, yeah. I think Isolation of Zebra was probably his biggest... Which, mo- of course, came during... Yeah, but I think that was his biggest movie, his yeah. biggest Hollywood movie. Yeah. Dr. Sin and Thomas Cena. Hell Drivers. They're, well, Hell Drivers, oh, God, he was great in that, wasn't he? <laughs> Which goes against his ethos, really, as a, as a performer. Well, he does say in that uh, rather fantastic documentary uh, by Chris Rodley, In My Mind, mm. there's a bit where he's talking about that. He's disputing the fact that his, his prudish reputation and everything. Mm. You should have seen that film I did when I was lustily romping with a gypsy. But he, <laughs> but he says, um, but those were movies. They weren't telly. Yeah. And there's a wonderful way he says telly. <laughs> but I think he made he was very he was actually adamant about the fact that this was family viewing and there weren't mm. any murders or sex or anything like yeah. that so he was but I think I guess that was um, accepted practice at the time TV was not you you, you want to see anything X-rated mm. you've got to go leave the house and go to a, a cinema TV is for families only there was, I don't even think there was a concept of the watershed back then was there no it was just um, unless you're Kenneth Tynan <laughs> well, it's because watching that in my mind, he, he's very uh, kind of at peace with himself. Yes, but he, he's still. quite happy to talk about it. He was then. I'm not sure. It did seem to be sort of he had to sort of syringe it out of him a little bit. Mm. He was he had wonderful stillness beckoned, you know, because he went because he did. Um, obviously, there's the Columbo episode, but he had his own TV show, didn't he? Uh, Rafferty. I don't. I didn't know that. Go yeah. on. What was Rafferty? Rafferty. I think he played a doctor. It was a short-lived... Dr. Rafferty. Dr. Rafferty. <laughs> 1977, he had his own TV series. It was only th- um, one season. It was 13 episodes, which is quite short, actually, for an American I show. Have, I've never heard of it. How the hell did I miss that? The uh, Yeah, military surgeon Rafferty, now a civilian, brings his rigid army ways to the more casual scene at City General. Often clashing with other staff, he's a mentor to carefree Daniel Gentry, while oblivious to Nurse Fira's affection for him. <laughs> Doesn't that sound a little bit like Quincy, though? A little bit, yeah. And I think, oh, Which was around about the same time, wasn't you know, it? There's a rival uh, Maverick Doctor uh, programme going on with Klugman over there. Well, it almost sounds a little bit like House as well, in terms of the way he would play it. Yes. Because without detracting from any of McGowan's performances, every single one of his performances has his trademark McGowan-ness. Yes, he is. He's an, he's unlike any actor. I think mm. I don't when he when he starts just going off on one. You think well, it's it's like oh this this reminds me of that other guy. This 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 yeah. just McGowan McGowan is just completely unique. It's like, I mean that 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 line the dreaming <laughs> and he he has a strange kind of avian tropical bird like sort of quality <laughs> to some of the way he when, yeah. you know in some of the episodes like uh, you know like Once Upon a Time when he'll just go mad sometimes yeah in, in terms of like intonation but and, and and you see that throughout the prisoner as well in terms of um mcgoohan's use of intonation mm. giving different meanings yes there's a in it's your funeral when uh, uh anna andres and come into the house and mm. he starts shouting at the surveillance people this <laughs> he can go from hot to cold very very quickly. Yes, but the the, the other intonation that is the more obvious is is the theory of of the title sequence, of, of the wrong intonation of the responses. Have you heard about this? No. Go on. So who are you? The new number two. <laughs> who is number one? You are number six. Now move the comma. Yeah. <laughs> you are number six. The yes. In yeah, terms yeah. of how that's delivered, it's uh, a lot of people think that that's. 
Yeah, literally from and ep- hidden from, under plain sight from episode two. Yes, you won't get it. That, that's <laughs> there's a strange kind of uh, way he says that as well. Pat Jackson. Yes, he goes back with um, McEwen several decades, doesn't he? I think he was yeah. a, a known quantity. He, he he directed an episode of, uh, of Danger Man. But, he, but he'd also had it. He, he directed other shows as well, like Saint. I don't think he was actually meant to direct this. A guy called Michael Truman was originally going to do it. But according, I think according to Catherine Kath, which is brilliant, <laughs> I suddenly realised it's just the same name. Yeah. I mean, you see people called David Davis. And you think, why have you done well, Neville that? Neville Neville. Neville Neville. <laughs> <laughs> Gary Neville's dad. It's called Neville Neville. Yeah. <laughs> it's true, you're not even joking. Why would you do that to your kid? I don't know. Ah. But anyway, she said that uh, Truman had a, a nervous breakdown. Hmm. I don't know if that's true, but certainly. But it, that's testimony to Pat Jackson's standing, is hmm. that he would be viewed as an incredibly safe pair of hands. Yeah. Which and, and safe pair of hands is one of those kind of faint praise descriptions, isn't it? But I mean, when you look at, like we say, the scene where he's turning the... The mirror and the rooms upside down. I think he's a very, you know, a, a lot better than just a safe pair of hands. But he's he doesn't direct any of the core seven episodes. No, and this is his first uh, stepping in, obviously for for Truman, and then Schizoid Man, yeah, Hammer to Anvil, and Do Not Forsake Me or My Darling were all Pat Jackson. Yeah, but what's lovely, I think, about Pat Jackson is that he was multi multi skilled. Yes, in film. Yeah, what's the term? Polymath. A polymath. Yeah. Was he? Was he all sorts of cinematographer, oh, director, producer, writer? He'd been an actor, but then again, a lot of actors went on those director training courses, producer training courses, didn't they? Yes. He was an editor, and he was also a production designer. So he he'd done everything yeah. by the time he got to um, to direct the prisoner. Yeah. Well, I suppose. I mean, I, you describe him as sort of throwaway filler episodes I suppose but you'd want them well done well yeah. and so who'd you go to he was I'm... also one of the oldest directors as well yes he was in his 50s he was about 50 by the time when this was being shot yeah no he's very impressive very impressive guy Anthony Skeen though did contribute to one of the the core episodes mm. because he also wrote Dance of the, of yes, the Dead yes yes and many happy returns I mean I th- these are some of my favourite episodes these so uh, he's he's a he's a writer of some considerable clout. But did you know Pat Jackson had worked with the GPO film unit in the mid nineteen thirties, producing those World War Two uh, not not showreels, like you know, almost like the Pathé News. Yes, kind of, Our yes. troops are now here in so and so that kind of thing. <laughs> but yeah, he he it, he did Western Approaches in nineteen forty four, which was the one that put him on the map. So he did a lot of work like military based. Yeah, uh, army based, but of course by by that time he would have been in his thirties. Yes, by the time World War Two, so he'd already had that military history, but also he'd been able to do all these jobs by the time he reached the prisoner. So when you say safe pair of hands, he was Ultimately, yeah properly. Yeah, he'd also worked under Alexander Corder. Yeah, it's. I mean, I was doing a bit of research about David Lean, and mm. he and he started off as an editor, didn't he? He was editing for Michael Powell. Mm. He edited Forty uh, Ninth Parallel and stuff I like think, that. I think so that's I, quite common. I think. I, I, yeah, I was going to say. I think back then you you were almost expected. Yeah. To to get your hands dirty well, in all sorts of different categories. James Cameron was a, a visual effects, wasn't he? He did. He was like a map painter and. Yeah, there was Escape from New York. He did the the map paintings and stuff like that. That's right. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he he spent um, two years in Hollywood. He was under contract to MGM. So he, he was one of the only directors who's actually worked in Hollywood as well. Any movies? 
Western Approaches was the um, was the one that he he got the plaudits for as a director. Yeah, but that was back in that was twenty years before the Prisoner. His director of debut was a, a short called The Horsey Mail. The Horsey Mail. The Horsey Mail, as in Post Mail. Yeah. Um, in 1938, so these would have been the GPO films leading up to Western Approaches, and then. Going through his kind of resume, he did um, a film called The Gentle Touch in 1956, um, Our Virgin Island, Snowball. But yeah, nothing that really kind of stands out. But it doesn't matter because he has that, that yeah. wealth of, of knowledge and experience. Well, um, Kathleen Kath was saying that she described her experience making this episode as being joyous, you know. Mm. So I think he was one of the things he brought with him was just the ability to just run a, a non conflicted set and, yeah. you know, and let everyone have a lovely time. There's, there was no messing about I, su- I suspect Magoon would have respected him enough not to sort of start throwing his weight around Jackson had also been an actor as well and I think sometimes directors who are previously actors or have that yeah, they kind do of empathy work. with actors yeah. you know and that may be part of, of why it was a joyous experience for Catherine Cath yeah you never hear of anyone having a terrible experience on a Ron Howard film do you no <laughs> <laughs> But, of course, after The Prisoner, he went on to do um, Professionals. He did The Famous Five, the 1970s series, and lived to the ripe old age of 95. Oh, marvellous. Yeah, he died in 2011. But what a career. I, I, I like the fact that we look into these kind of unsung yes. heroes yeah. of the show. And it, cause these, because we, we've watched these episodes so many times in our youth, mm. these names... Have have a, a value, but this is nice to, to doing this podcast. I'm sort of uncovering a lot more information about these people, and it's yeah, like you say, because he never really directed that one great film. Well, it, it, he's it, he's not really known in his biography. It says that he was never able to find his niche. Yeah, so you know? instead he found twelve instead. Yeah, he's a jack of all trades. Yes, and a master of several. Yeah, and you're saying that about Anthony Skeen. He wrote some of the um, Sexton Blake stories. Yeah, not the original. Obviously, the novels, but it's like some of the, I think it was the graphic novels mm. that he wrote. Yes, he was a comic book uh, writer as well, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah, um, which is kind of unusual because he would have been, I guess, in his his, his thirties or forties by the time he was writing this. In the sixties, he wrote um, an episode of uh, Journey to the Unknown as well. It's uh, an anthology series, yeah, but more of a supernatural mm. kind of element. So maybe. Maybe more like uh, Hammer House of Horror, the TV series. Yes. Or, uh, or The Twilight Zone as well. But, uh, no, Skeen's resume is, is, is quite quite a big one. Quite seriously impressive, yeah. yeah. So what you've got here in this episode with a, the with a writer and the director is, is almost an inordinate level of competence. Yeah. And I think that reflects in the, sh- the show. It's a very well-put-together episode, this, mm-hmm. I think. If, if, if it loses points, it's... Possibly, you've got this fantastic idea that even in your sleep, they can get to you. This pre-Freddy Krueger, yeah, uh, pre-Inception, surve- yeah, they're, they're like Christopher su- Nolan has made a whole film basically <laughs> based on this episode to a certain extent. He's, um, yeah, the, the surveillance of these people uh, doesn't stop at your skull. Mm. It can actually, they can actually go into your brain, which is unbelievably sinister. Yeah. And I think that they could have taken it down more interesting roads mm. instead of using it as a, just a bit of a sort of sci-fi whimsy. But nonetheless, it doesn't matter. It's it's a, it's a good, fun, solid episode. It's got a nice little twist. It's good to see number six kind of coming up trumps. Yeah, I, I can see this as an episode of The Twilight Zone. 
Yes, maybe in in a different, you know, basically the same sort of plot, but yeah. just a different outcome. Take take away the the prisoner nature of it. You know, somebody who's an actual prison and they're trying to find out the motivation behind something. You bring him in, and you know, I think it's a new idea for the time. Yeah, in terms of a science fiction kind of conceit, but today I think a lot of films like The Cell, Inception, owe a huge debt to this episode. Yeah. One of the books I was reading, apparently, it's, I, I've I've seen Killing Zoe, hmm. um, but I was so I was so busy hating it. Yeah, it's Eric Stoltz's character <laughs> says, doesn't he? He yeah. says um, A, B, and C is is the best episode of The Prisoner. Yeah. Oh, it just it just I found that film so maddening. I talked earlier about Randall and Hopkirk deceased were Peter Bowles. Yeah. So, do you know the connection between the Randall and Hopkirk episode Revenge of the Bog People and The Prisoner? Oh, God, I wish I had this on the tip of my tongue, but I don't have it anywhere near my brain. Go on. Well, we recently had a conversation, didn't we, about the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie Cyborg, <laughs> where the characters were all named after guitars. Gibson Reckenbecker. Gib- Gibson Reckenbecker, Fender <laughs> Tremolo and things like that. So if I read you some of the character names from this episode. OK. OK. So Mark Williams, who you might know from The Fast Show, yes. played Professor Dolman. Celia Imry wonderful Scottish actress, played Professor McKern. Um, Matt Lucas played a character called Nesbitt. <laughs> you see where I'm going with this? Who wrote this episode? Charlie Higson and Kate Wood. But uh, Higson wrote the screenplay and he also directed it. I'm guessing Charlie Higson is a prisoner fan. I'm quite sure of it, yes. Ah, I, should, I thought you actually meant the uh, the 1970s of Randall and Hopkirk. No, no, the, the Vic and Bob. Yeah, Vic that, and Bob. That, that deserves more love. There was Freddie Jones, father of Toby. Yes. Um, played Caradoc Evans. Uh, Clifford Evans. Clifford Evans, yeah. So each character has that connection all... to number twos, actors who played number two. Oh, it's fantastic. Isn't it? Do you know what? I, 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 I used to watch that series mm. when it came. I really enjoyed it, actually. But uh, I, it's the kind of thing I'm, I'm surprised I didn't f- run down to the landline phone and call you immediately <laughs> and say, <"Go." laughs> but that's brilliant. That's all, as they say, all we've got time for. So it's time. Time to, uh, to rate it. What's the scores on the doors? Um, I'm going to go. I'm going to give it, I'm gonna give it a, a four. OK. And I don't mean that in a bad way yeah. because I think it's a solid... Fun bit of escapism mm. uh, with some excellent points, uh, excellent moments, but it it is it is filler. It's, it's you know it's a high four, uh, four you know it's a, it's a it's a B, mm. but I'll give it. I'm going to give it a four. And I, I think I agree with you. I think I would give it a four, uh, but yeah, because it doesn't really drive number six's character arc. Well, I, I personally don't think it does. It's just like you say, it's there to provide. A little bit of filler and a science fiction trope of echoes of Danger Man. Yeah. To appeal it, to it, that audience. Maybe that's why it was shown as the third episode. We want to keep our Danger Man audience. <laughs> Give them a traditional Danger Man episode. Yes. It's, um, no, it does, it does what it's supposed to do and it does it well. Hmm. But that, that kind of is in a little bit the faint praise it sounds like. Hmm. But no, I'd, I'd, I'd happily watch it again. And uh, on to next week. And we're going to yes. go uh, into a different kettle of fish altogether. We're going to go up several notches uh, yes. for the ingeniously titled Free For All. Yes. So if you want to find us on Facebook, you can find us by searching for Podcast Free For All. And if you want to look for us on Twitter, 
We are Free For All Pod. Free For All Podcast was presented by Kai Ross and Chris Bainbridge. The theme tune was by Gordon Milton and special thanks to Jemima Duncar for the artwork. Please see you. you.